0: So 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 22. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. Amen. This is God's Word. Well, this is a letter that encourages deeper discipleship. Paul wanted the Thessalonians to grow in love, in maturity, in strength, and in endurance. And I think sometimes in this letter, he sounds awful like a personal trainer, not that I've ever really heard a personal trainer and what they sound like well you know what? you can imagine though at times personal trailers saying well done you know encouraging you saying you're doing well keep it up but the point of having a personal trainer is that they're there to try and push you on to the next level faster harder more one more well that's what paul does in this letter he sees these new christians and he's really encouraged by them he sees their progress in lots of different areas. But in this letter, you can't miss it. Again and again, he's saying, come on, more and more, through and through, that's what he's looking for in terms of their sanctification, in terms of their growth in Christlikeness. Now, in these verses, in verses 16 to 22 of chapter 5, these verses contain four things that will help keep Christians spiritually strong as a church family as they relate to God's. Uh, Four things that help us grow in love, maturity, strength, and endurance. Four things that if you stop doing them, will guarantee that you become flabby in your faith. What are they? Rejoicing, praying, thanking, and heeding. Now, all of these instructions, uh, understand, are given in the plural. So you could do these things on your own, But Paul is addressing a church family. He wants us to do these things together. And all of these instructions are also imperatives. That means that they're not optional. They're commands. Paul's putting something on our to-do list as a church family. They're essential. And all of these instructions are in the present tense, which means they're not just occasional things. They're constant. So let's start with number one, rejoicing. Do you rejoice in the Lord always, as verse 16 says? Rejoice always. Uh, Rejoicing is what people who believe in Jesus do. Uh, Nothing makes us happier than knowing God. Nothing makes us more joyful, gives us greater joy than the knowledge that our sins are forgiven and our eternity lies with Christ in the new heaven and new earth. And one of the reasons why we can be joyful always, as Paul adds is that nothing can take that away from you. Now, the Thessalonians really needed to hear that. They were going through hard times, and hardship makes happiness hard. Uh, We've heard about the struggles in this letter already as we've walked through this series. But Paul knew fine and well of their ongoing hardships, and that these hardships could easily rob them of their joy. But Paul says, rejoice always, even in the midst of these circumstances that are hard. Rejoice always. God has not left you. He's right there with you. This hardship is not meaningless. He's using it for his good purposes. Now, Paul's not only instructed them and commanded them in this particular passage, he's also given them the example. We know from the rest of this letter and the rest of Paul's writings in the New Testament that suffering after suffering after suffering after suffering followed this man. And yet, have you, I don't think I have, read of a happier man than Paul? Uh, In another passage, it says that he he talks about the Christian life as being something described as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. I think that's a great way to define the way the apostle Paul uh, lived his life, sorrowful in this life, yet completely rejoicing always in the Lord and in all that the Lord had done for him. Now why is this important for us? Because ongoing joy helps churches stay healthy, keep growing, and shine brighter. Our rejoicing commends the gospel to each other for our growth. Our rejoicing, no matter what the circumstance, commends the gospel to the world for their salvation. And similarly, a million things can threaten to rob us of our joy, but we must constantly remind each other as a church family that our happiness is tied up in the eternal heavenly realities, not earthly temporary struggles. We must remember and help each other to remember that Jesus taught us to expect troubles. We need to remember and help each other remember that God controls the intensity of the trials we go through, and in the midst of them, God is really at work in us, transforming us into the likeness of our Lord Jesus Christ and through us, offering a true testimony of the gospel to those who are outside. Now, remember, this is the imperative. It's a command. Paul's putting something on our to-do list. That means we need to train ourselves to do it, to be joyful always. And don't forget, it's in the plural. This is a typical feature of our life together. So on Sundays, are we rejoicing? In our singing and in our preaching. In our conversations afterwards. Listen, when we truly grasp what God is doing in the lives of our church family, it ought to be the happiest place on earth. So rejoicing, that's the first thing. Second thing, praying. Look with me at verse 16. Pray continually, it says. Similarly, praying is what people who believe in Jesus do. It's part and parcel of our faith. It is, in fact, the proper expression of our faith in God and one of the primary ways that we relate to him. God speaks to us through his word, and we listen to him. We pray to God in response to his word, and amazingly, he listens to us. Prayer is primarily a way of relating to God as our Father, but one of the greatest joys of knowing Him and being His child is having the privilege of being able to ask Him, the Omnipotent One of all the universe, to act and to do so on our behalf with the knowledge that no one is beyond His reach and nothing beyond His ability and that He invites us to ask Him, boldly even, With all of these things in mind, he invites us to ask for things boldly, and we can. Now, the Thessalonians needed to hear this because, again, they were struggling with ongoing persecution. They were hearing Paul even urge them in this letter to go further and further in their discipleship, in their maturity in their faith, to stop sinning in certain ways, to learn to love each other more and more. Now, they needed daily grace to live in a way that pleased God and put his glory on display. And again, Paul was a great example for them. Even in this letter, we've seen on a couple of occasions in this letter already how Paul actually writes down a prayer for them. He gives us insight into the very things that he's asking God for or in the ways he's asking God to act in the lives of these brothers and sisters. And if we see back in chapter 3, verses 9 to 13, what does he pray for? Well, he makes the focus of his, pr- their, his prayers their faith, their love, their hope and endurance. So faith, hope, and love, that great triad of the Christian faith. He's praying that in all of these things, the most important things, the most foundational things, that these brothers, brothers and sisters would grow into Christ likeness. And he's praying this not necessarily because they're weak in these areas. In fact, you read from chapter 1, he's absolutely bowled over at how well they're doing. But he's asking for these things because there's always room to grow. And that's true for us as well. But notice as well how he prays, not just what he prays for in that passage, but how frequently... Night and day, he says. That doesn't mean that he's never having any sleep, but he's operating in the constancy of prayer that he's just thinking, I'm going to keep praying for these people every time they come to mind. I'm going to make a point of remembering them on purpose, and I'm going to pray these things. Frequently and fervently, Paul prays most earnestly, reminding us that prayers don't just come from a list, though lists can be helpful. They come from a heart, a heart that really loves Now, why is this particular command important for them and for us well ongoing prayer helps churches stay healthy keep growing and shine brighter it's as simple as that praying is the exercise of faith that keeps our relationship with god strong and our perspective on what's going on in our lives true and that's what he's that's why paul's encouraging us to love each other better and love our neighbors more, to pray for these things. And like Paul, we ought to encourage each other to pray to God in all kinds of situations. Continually, he says, all the time, let it be a habit for you. Sure, set aside time to do it, but enjoy every opportunity where you can say, oh, thank you, Lord, every time something, a blessing comes to you. Or help me, Lord, every time an anxious pang Is felt in your heart. Or save them, Lord, every time you see someone who's not a believer. Throw up these prayers all the time to the Lord and trust in his goodness to act. Now remember, this is an imperative. It's a command. Paul's putting something on our to-do list as a church family. That means we need to train ourselves to do it. Maybe you need a little bit of help in this. Maybe you're a newish Christian. You've not really been taught how to pray. Go and read Matthew chapter 6. Read the Lord's Prayer. Find those places where the Lord, is Jesus, is teaching his disciples how to pray. And use the Lord's Prayer indeed as a framework. Not just to say the prayer through, but to say each line of the prayer and expand on it in prayer. And read a book on prayer. Uh, One of the best books I've read in prayer is A Praying Life by Paul Miller. Uh, You can get this on our bookstall if they run out then ask them for another one. It's fantastic. Uh, Praying should be like dinner with good friends, is what he says. That's what the relationship should be like between children of God and our Father. Does prayer feel like that to you? No, sometimes it just feels a bit more burdensome, doesn't it? Sometimes it feels hard. Sometimes it feels like a struggle to pray. Well, two things you can do. One, read that book. Two, three things. I've just come up with another one. Two things. Actually, just pray and keep praying. Just keep going. Um, Keep asking God in those moments. Even when you're like, I'm struggling to pray. Tell God, I'm struggling to pray. Please help me. Thirdly, pray with other people. Pray with each other. There are a few things that fuel and encourage Prayer in our own lives than praying with brothers and sisters. So make a point of finding a couple of people to do that with. Now, don't forget this is given in the plural. This encouragement, this command should be a typical feature of our life together. So pray for each other as a church family. That's crucial. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he taught us to do it with each other in mind. You know, he talks about our Father, plural, straight away. He's broadening our horizons to see it's not just an individualistic thing that we do. Forgive us our sins. Give us our daily bread. He's automatically trying to broaden your horizons and recognize your brothers and sisters around you. And pray for them, the very things that you pray for yourself. Whatever you read in the Bible, at whatever time of the day you do it each day, pray that thing for your whole church family. Pray through your membership directory or through church app if you've got it. And Pray the things that you've read from that passage for those who are in that page that day. Or just pick four or five people at a time. It's dead simple. You'll find that you start to grow in love for your brothers and sisters. You'll be excited to see how God's answering those prayers in the days ahead. Don't just pray for others, pray with others more. Pray in our small groups when we gather and in our church prayer meetings. Uh, There are three weekly prayer meetings in the week there are two monthly prayer meetings the bulletins always full of details on these i don't need to go into all of them but pray brothers and sisters as paul has instructed us to so rejoicing and praying are the first two things the third thing thanking look with me verse 16 give thanks in all circumstances for this is god's will for you in christ jesus now thanksgiving is what people who believe in jesus do no matter what the situation. Romans 1 tells us that thanklessness is a a typical mark of those who are unbelievers. Uh, Ingratitude is a defining mark of ungodliness. It tells us that although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. Not giving glory, not giving thanks, is the epitome of rebellion and sin. But thankfulness is the mark of the godly. And Paul is commanding it here. And you understand why? Again, because it reorientates us. And because it's right. When all's well, thankfulness reminds us that we're not independent creatures, but completely dependent upon God. Everything we have comes from him. He should be thanked. And when times are tough, well, God being for us is good cause for giving thanks. God being at work in those times is good cause, good reason for giving thanks. Now, the Thessalonians, again, needed to hear that. There was so much in their church family life together that they should have been thankful for, and they were. They were were thanking God themselves for the fact that the gospel had come to them, that they had welcomed the message with joy despite the persecution that they were experiencing, that they had turned to God from idols to serve Him, the true and the living gods, and that faith and hope and love were being worked out in that church family in amazing ways considering how long they had been uh, born again. And more than that, the gospel was sounding forth from them. We saw that in chapter 1, that the gospel they had been received, they were like, receive and transmit, like satellites, if you remember. Transmitting this gospel so that it was going beyond the borders of their own city. It was going north and south and into Europe. Everybody else was testifying about their faith. That's how strong their witness was. So there was much to encourage them, much to be grateful for, but there was an awful lot going on that could easily make them grumble. I don't need to say any more about the struggles they were experiencing. I've already talked about that in the previous sections. But those struggles could easily make them grumble. Thankfulness, then, is both the right response to all we have and the antidote to the grumbling that could come from us for all of our struggles. Now, why is this important? Well, again, ongoing thankfulness helps churches stay healthy, keep growing, and shine brighter. It's all tied up in these things. Gratitude creates humility. Gratitude forces us to look for the blessings that we ought to give thanks for, and reminds us that even if we're struggling, Through seriously hard times, God has still given us more than we deserve in his Son and in his salvation. And don't forget, this is an imperative. It's a command. Paul's putting something on our to-do list as a church family. That means we need to train ourselves in thanksgiving. That means we need to help each other count our blessings, particularly if we're pretty rubbish at it ourselves. Don't you find that? that we can be so immersed in a difficult situation that it's hard to see any kind of light. But really, whenever we're together, don't you find that brothers and sisters are often there to say, do you know what? I can actually see this evidence of grace, this evidence of grace, and this evidence of grace in your life. It's true. In the same way that when it comes to sin, our hearts are sinfully self-deceived, I think we... Our hearts are sinfully self-clouded at times. We need one another in the church family to help us see clearly and to help us see the things that we ought to give glory and thanks and praise to God for. And don't presume on God's kindness either. He's shown you kindness in innumerable ways. Thank him for it. And let's do it together. Remind each other of the evidence of grace. Point them out. There's so much to be grateful for. So rejoicing and praying and thanking are all exercises that help to keep a church family spiritually strong. Finally, well, heeding. Not like a ball, but uh, God's word. Look with me, verse 16. Do not quench the spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. But test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. Now, heeding God's words is the regular exercise of people who believe in Jesus. There's no question about it. That's what the Thessalonians did when they first believed. You can read about that in chapter 2. Uh, that's what Paul wants them to keep on doing, hence the reason for this instruction in here. And that's why the Thessalonians needed to hear this. From what Paul says here in verses 19 to 20, he's, it's obvious he's addressing a situation there. They're not heeding God's Word in some particular way. They're not heeding it as they ought to. And Paul says they were quenching the Holy Spirit. Now, that is stifling or ignoring somehow the same Spirit who had been at work in them to give them new birth and transformation as far as they'd received it. So, how were they quenching the Spirit exactly? Well, by treating prophecies with contempt, it seems. The church in Thessalonica were treating words that came from God, that's what, the, that's what prophecy is, uh, with disrespect. Now, most likely, they had heard some bad prophecy and figured that it was best to, the best way to deal with it was to not listen to any prophecy. Uh, and that was a problem for them, because in that day and age, as Paul explains in another letter, in 1 Corinthians 14, God had given prophets to the church for their strengthening encouraging, and comfort, he said. Now that's exactly what the Thessalonians needed. In another part of that letter, in 1 Corinthians, Paul says that that prophecy was a gift to be desired, not disregarded, precisely because it strengthened the churches. But when people in the church were prophesying, it seems like the Thessalonians are just putting their fingers in their ears or paying no attention to what God was saying through another believer trying to bring God's word to them. By doing so, Paul says, you're disrespecting the Holy Spirit, stifling his work among you, and in doing so, really ensuring that you stay spiritually weak. You'll not be fortified and edified and built up in God's word. But Paul knew that they were There were bad or misguided prophecies. He knew that, finding well. So many of his letters addressed that head on. But his solution is not the same as the Thessalonians' solution. It wasn't to put their fingers in their ears. It was much better than that. He said, test everything, hold on to what is good, reject every kind of evil. Now, let me try and clarify something. I want to try and differentiate between what we have as capital P prophets and small p prophets. It's not a biblical distinction. That's just me trying to figure out a way to teach this. And I think it's reasonable in some sense. So the capital P prophets are those through whom God spoke authoritatively to give us the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Scriptures. Uh, in the New Testament, these prophets are essentially known as apostles. Now, Paul is not suggesting here as he says, test everything, hold on to what is good, reject every kind of evil. He is not suggesting that some of these uh, biblical writers could have written something evil and that it needed to be tested just in case. There's going to be some evil mixed in there. No, not at all. The Bible has been superintended by God so that it is without error. So it's not evil. So Paul's not saying... Hey, you know Isaiah, I just need to check to see if part of what you're written is evil or not. No, it's not what you're saying at all. It's safe to say it's pure. Paul instead is talking about this gift of prophecy, this the small p prophets, the everyday prophets if you like, of those who spoke post Pentecost. When one of the crucial signs of this new age, of the new covenant that we were hearing about this morning from Ross was that God's Holy Spirit would be poured out on all people, men and women, sons and daughters prophesying, okay? Speaking the word of God to each other. It's those guys that you should test, Paul says. It's each other as you speak God's word into each other's lives. Because our word to each other is not on a par with the capital P Prophets. It's not on a par with the apostles. Our word to each other when we try and encourage people and take God's word and speak it into someone else's life, thinking that it's particularly applicable, maybe even feeling like we ought to do that, that word is not infallible and it's not inerrant. It has to pass through lead pipes like us. It could be totally wrong. It could be totally evil. But Our words might be well-intentioned, but very misguided. That can commonly be the case. So how does this apply to us in this day and age? Well, well, in Paul's day, God had poured out His Spirit on all people as a sign that the Messiah had come and this age of the church had begun. And before a completed New Testament was in place, God had spoken through Spirit through these small p, everyday prophets, in the routine of church family life back then it seems seems pretty obvious from when you read the new testament the big question of course is does god still speak in that way today well that's a fairly controversial question Uh, some would say no to answer that when the last apostles died off the new testament was in wide circulation that particular gift ceased to exist in ephesians paul explains that the apostles and prophets are the foundation for the church And the evangelists and the pastor teachers are those who stand on that word as the foundation and preach it as the basis for their message. And that's the thing that needs to be heeded. Uh, Preaching is the thing that needs to be tested so that you can hold on to what is good and discard whatever is evil. Or others would say, well, yeah, God still speaks through people in this particular way today. There are are two kinds of yeses in there, though. Uh, There are those who would say that, yes, God still speaks through other believers in the church, words that need to be weighed and tested alongside Scripture. But there are others who would say, well, God speaks powerful words through prophets that ought to be taken as commands and on a par, in other words, with God's authoritative words, the Old and New Testament, the Holy Bible. Well, that last one, by the way, is extremely dangerous and, in my opinion, to be avoided. But, hey, test everything. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. Irrespective of your views on the place of prophecy today, what we must understand is that ongoing openness and attentiveness to God's Word is what helps local church families stay healthy, keep growing, and shine brighter. There's no doubt about it. So in what way can we quench the Spirit or treat what God is saying to us with contempt? Well, you could have a bad attitude toward the Bible. You could be inattentive and switch off when the preacher is preaching. You could be daydreaming or playing on your phone. You can have bad theology when it comes to preaching, thinking it's not that important. Uh, You can be lazy when it comes to listening, or you can place maybe a higher value on other things like music and singing or whatever. But we need to see the essential nature of this command, remembering that it is an imperative. We need to train ourselves to listen well, to heed what God is saying to us as his word is taught. So find out what helps you concentrate. Could be taking notes is what helps you concentrate. Could be that not taking notes is what helps you concentrate. Because uh, you could be writing something down. The preacher's already moved on to three things later. And you're like, that's me. I'm out of it. I have no idea where this guy's going. Maybe even snacking before the service. That helps me. That uh, I'm I'm not joking. Like a little Freddo frog or something like that. Whatever you can rake from your children's uh, sweetie cupboards uh, generally works. Um, And simply know your Bible. Know God's words. That is the essential way that you'll be equipped together to test to see what whatever's been said from up front is true and is good. That's what helps you to understand whether or not you should actually hold on to it for dear life because it's of God, or let it go. Be like the Bereans in Acts 17, who were commended for their noble character. They were class. They took what the apostle Paul said, and still went to check alongside the scriptures to see if what he said was true. Be like the Bereans then. And don't forget, this is given in the plural. It is a typical feature of our life together. To love God's word, to explore it together, to test it together, and to encourage attentiveness and openness to it, maybe even by the questions that we ask each other after our formal time is over. Well, brothers and sisters, as we walk through this little section in chapter 5 and relationships in the church, I'm really encouraged I'm encouraged, by the way, that our church family exercises these disciplines of the faith for the benefit of both insiders and outsiders. When we rejoice and we pray and we thank God and we listen to his word, there's still room for us to grow. Let's keep praying and working together for this growth and this maturity that we might better display by our living and by what we say with our mouths the gospel to everyone else in this city and if you're here tonight and you're not a christian we're really glad you're here um, i'm glad that you're able to get an inside look into the kind of things that church leaders like me try and teach a whole church family on i hope you understand that effectively what i'm encouraging the church family to do from what the bible says really clearly is love each other really 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 well so that we might be better equipped to love you best because it's as we support and encourage and love each other deeply that we really help each other explain more clearly why to you why it is we believe in Jesus and why we believe that you believing in him would be the best decision that you could ever make in your life. He is the one who has loved us when we are unlovely, coming into the world while we were still sinners. Dying for us on the cross to take away our sins and giving us this great gift, a free gift. You don't have to pay for it. You don't have to do anything to get it. A free gift of grace. A free gift of his blessing and favor. Forgiveness of sin and life with him. And to take hold of that gift, you've just got to do what each member of the church family here have done. Welcome it with open arms. Receive it through repentance and faith. That's what the Thessalonians did in chapter 1. They turned to God from their sin, from their idols. From all the things that they treasured instead of him. Turned to God from idols to serve him. The true and living God. He's real. He exists. And you ought to take note of who he is. And live your life on the foundation of his words. I'd love to chat to you about that afterwards. Um, I'll be at the door for about 10 minutes after the service. I'd be glad to talk to you about that. There's a prayer team down front as well afterwards who'd be glad to pray with you. Whether you're a member or whether you're just visiting with us, they'd be delighted to hear what you would like to pray for and then to pray for you as well. Let us uh, uh, let us encourage one another, brothers and sisters, as we try to live out this This great picture of the church uh, according to his grace, by his grace, and according to his will. Let's pray together.